Well, as we continue through a series of responsive requisites, and that sounds kind of cumbersome to say that, but remember that we are in the middle of a diagram, if you put that in your mind, where we have the Father who has planned and sent the Son. Uh, the Son has been obedient to the Father, has been responsive to the Father, has uh, and is in our text here in John 15, uh, on the very hour of his arrest and the beginning of the passion there of our Christ. And so he is obedient to the Father. And what the Father requires of him, he is prepared to provide because he sees beyond the pain and suffering, which is very important today's message, uh, to see the joy, which is our salvation. That was, that was the purpose of that. And then because of Christ's sacrifice and his provision of salvation, we uh, are called and have opportunity to respond to that call by faith believing that we can trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And then as we do so, that we are then given by God, Holy Spirit, to fill us, to equip us, uh, to direct us, comfort us, all of these things we looked at as well as the continuing work that he has of convicting us. And so we have Holy Spirit as the next gift, as we have the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the, the being brought into the family of God, uh, God's gifts just keep coming. And that great gift of his Holy Spirit to take up residence within us that we can uh, cry out to God. Uh, uh, he will do that on our behalf, that we have his direction, his comfort, his illumination, all these things. And in response to the Holy Spirit in us being the temple of God, that this is, we are the the place of his residence now, not in a temple built with human hands, but in us he dwells. Now how should we be responsive? And those responses that we are called upon are also requisites, they are requirements to receive further blessing from God. And the further blessing we're going to be looking at is a very powerful, active, effectual prayer life which will then lead to even further blessing of God, the icing on the cake of full joy, of perfect peace, and of the Father's love. And so that is our objective, and so we are bearing down on it. We only have a few weeks left to complete that diagram. Unfortunately, it's going to take like two months because I'm going to be gone for four, right? right at the end, right before the very climax of these three chapters, I'm going to have to take a four-week, I thought I would be done before, um, but it didn't happen. That's okay. So you can anticipate it for a while. So we, are, we have worked our way through a series of responsive requisites. They are things we are responding to God's working of the Holy Spirit in us, but they are requisite that we might continue to receive his blessing in our life. And so it is Ultimately, an evidence, these evidences of genuine faith that we truly believe, the Spirit is truly in control of our life. We've actually surrendered our will to the will of the Father. What does it look like? What is that evidence? And that's what we've been studying. We talked about going from salvific belief to that genuine understanding of a good God, that we have a, a belief that he answers prayer, that he wants to work in our life, that he is an active agent and not just some far-off concept, but he is a personal, interactive, um, 
agent in our life that is seeking our welfare, that he will work all things together for our good. And so we come to him with real belief, really trusting in him, and our prayers should evidence that. We also talked about the necessity of obedience. We talked about the, the necessity of doing his work. And then for the last two weeks, we looked at the necessity to abide in him and to bear fruit. That these are evidences that need to happen, that over and over again, Jesus Christ is having given that requisite, that prerequisite, that requirement, for an active prayer life says, ask whatever you will, and it'll be done for you. And so when we have an ineffectual prayer life that's going nowhere, it is not that God is not listening. It is more necessary for us, instead of questioning God's existence or his care for us or his love for us, is to question our own condition. Have we met the requisites of effectual praying? Are we actively involving ourselves in growing our belief in him and praying the prayer, Lord, help our unbelief, as the disciples did? Are we actively seeking out to obey God's word? And in, that means that we're going to have to examine it, study it, read it, consider it, and put it into practice. Are we doing the works that God has called us to do? Is there fruitfulness there? Are we truly abiding in him? Well, we have a couple, three more. We have three more that we're going to be going through uh, in this really a study of, good, of a prayer life. And this we find in chapter 15. And we're going to pick up in verse 18 and read through verse 25. And this is uh, probably the one we like the least out of all of these. And so we're going, and so it's not a mistake that there's not very many people here. <laughs> Between illness and travel and work and all that. So here we go. Chapter 15, verse 18. It says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and have hated, also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Let's keep reading the end of the chapter. But when the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he'll testify me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but chapter 16, verse 1 begins that I'm telling you these things so you don't stumble. And so we find that one of the evidence, you might say, well, what is this requisite? What is required of me in this passage? Am I supposed to go out there and make people hate me? Uh, that's really not required. <laughs> what is required is that you are prepared in your heart and life and mind to endure what should very naturally occur to an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. 
that if you are believing in him to the depth that we've talked about, we are obeying and we're doing his works, we're abiding in him, we're bearing fruit in our life of the nature we talked about last week, that one of the things that should happen is the world should hate us and that they should bring tribulation upon us, persecution. And thus the instruction here is that we don't stumble, that we endure this. And endurance becomes uh, one of the great evidences of genuine faith. Are we enduring, not when it's comfortable, easy, and uh, requires little of us, but are we truly following Jesus Christ when it is difficult? When everything within us of the human side would recoil from God and want to blame him and want to uh, just say, it's so much easier not to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When that is the condition of your environment, but you affirm yourself more and more, I am going to do this no matter the cost. This is genuine faith, and this is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. This is what all of the New Testament writers have to say. And I just want to take a little snapshot for you, a little travelogue through some of the New Testament, shall we? On why and how extensive this expectation is that you need to endure. Let's just go to Acts. Let's just start there. Um, we'll get out of the Gospels and move right to Acts. Acts chapter 14. I'm just going to take a few. I'm, I, I have a, quite a few. Uh, it's a good study for you um, to look up the words persecution, tribulation, trial, suffering, and go through all of these, and uh, you'll have an extensive list of verses, and, uh, but let's pick up on them. Chapter 14, uh, Paul is um, coming back on his missionary journey. Uh, by the way, and if you're wondering, uh, he, in verse 19 and 20, he just got stoned. All right, so 19 and 20, he got stoned. Let's uh, pick up in verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, after being stoned, and made many disciples, that's followers of Jesus Christ, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, some of those places he was also chased out of, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them, continue in the faith, saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, he is not talking about eschatological period of seven years that we have misnamed the tribulation. He is talking about that which the world executes against believers. The tribulation, consistently in God's word, is not God exercising his wrath. That's called wrath or time Jacob's trouble. It is consistently what the world does to Christians is tribulation, and I would challenge you to really study that out. So he must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. He is strengthening them and encouraging them, what? To endure. You're going to have to endure this. You're going to have to be prepared in your heart and life to continue in the faith. It requires exhortation, and one of the aspects of coming to church and in a ministry and a fellowship is that we are to be not only strengthening each other in knowledge of God's word, but encouraging one another, strengthening one another, recognizing that you're going to have to endure some things this week from the world that aren't pleasant. And we should be up to the task because we have spent time together with God in his word, by his spirit, and, and among his people. And so we're ready 
And thus, that was Paul's discipleship program. Remember, this is what, not his evangelistic swing. He did that on the way out. On his way back, it was all endure, endure, endure. And this needs to be the theme of all true discipleship material is endure. And needs to be a theme of our messages, of our ministries, one to another. Endure. You're going to have to continue in the faith. Keep on strengthened in it. Uh, let's jump. Um, I'm a, I'm a, let's, uh, let's jump way up, way forward. Let's go to Hebrews. And now I want to go to Peter, and then we're going to go to, I'm trying to get different authors for you. We're not sure about the author of Hebrews. Probably Paul, but could be Paulos, could be Barnabas, could be a few others. Chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. And of course, all of Hebrews is about do not fall away, endure, 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 endure. Chapter 10, pick up in verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so we have uh, yet again another very clear description, and, and he's going to talk about this extensively in Hebrews. We could go to Galatians, we could go to Ephesians, we could go to, to Corinthians. We can see all of these being calling to endure in your faith, to persevere, to Stand fast, that term in Ephesians. Uh, stand fast over and over again. Why do you have the armor of God? So you stand fast. That is that you endure, that you last, that you uh, are still a follower of Jesus Christ at his coming or as you take your last breath. Turn with me. And Peter talks about that we take up our cross and follow Jesus um, and that this is the, the definition really of of the Christian walk. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to go all the way to the end. I, I really cut down my list here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and following. This is the church of Philadelphia. Um, and it's interesting. This is the church that, got, that Jesus' letter has no, uh, nothing negative necessarily uh, written against it. Uh, the others... The other six, I have this against you, yet I have this against you, yet I have this, and uh, that you are tolerating this or tolerating that. The Church of Philadelphia doesn't say that with regards to it. Uh, let's pick up in verse 8. It says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. They have endured. They're, they're not powerful. They're not huge. They're not the strongest church in Christendom. Um, they're little, um, but they are faithful. 
And let's look at what, is, what he describes. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And thus, here is this wonderful little church of little strength that says, I have power. What is the authority you have? You endure. You last. Welcome. You last. You endure. You're strengthened. So many others started well. The church at Ephesus was one of the strongest churches in Christendom, certainly in Asia Minor. And they started well, but it says you left off your first love. You started well, but now I have something against you, and you've got to correct that if you're going to be right with me. And so what is it that God highlights here in Revelation is the one little church, it says, you are small, you're weak, you're, you have little strength, um, but you have an open door of opportunity, and here is what defines you is that you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. You've stuck it out. And God recognizes that, that it is not how you start that is, that is the def definition of your walk with God. It is how it concludes. Have you endured to the end? And this is the call throughout the epistles, throughout the New Testament, and it goes back to our words here of Jesus and, and John and Matthew and Mark as well as Luke, um, that we endure. Prepare yourself, the world is going to hate you. Now let's go, that's a little, just a little snippet through a few passages of how important this is in the Christian walk. That defining ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, if it's going to have any impact eternally, not only on those around us, but even on God himself to be the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, if our, we want our prayers to be effectual, we need to have this kind of faith, a faith that endures, that stands fast, says the word of God is true, I will follow it all my days, and nothing, nothing, nothing of this world will dissuade me. I will pursue it. And when I say nothing of this world, let's talk about what that might be. Let's go back to John chapter 15. The world hates you. If the world hates you, relax. <laughs> it hated me first. Don't be surprised. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So why does the world hate Jesus? That's really where we got to begin with. Because if we're going to become followers of Jesus Christ, our expectation is what? Our expectation is that we're going to live out, walk in his ways. So we're going to walk as he walked. So we have to figure out what is it about Jesus Christ that the world hated. After all, he came, what did he do? He fed people, healed them, cast out demons, 
taught them the truth. Um, he had a great following. They say, did the world hate Jesus? Yes. Because remember that they followed him only until they heard something they didn't like. Then they became his enemy. They followed him as long as things were, as long as the food was flowing, as long as the, <laughs> as long as the benefits were there. Uh, but at some point, it, if it cost them anything, they weren't there. They turned. And those that believed in him were then shouting out, crucify him. They turned away. They left off following him. They did not endure. And thus it isn't the initiation that is the critical step. It is the completion of a life that follows after Jesus Christ. So why does the world hate him? Well, first of all, Jesus Christ is going to go through this and talk about how this happens. First of all, they hated Jesus Christ because he wasn't of them. He wasn't like them. That's right. He wasn't like them. Let's be real honest about the human condition. We really only get along with people that, like, that we like and that agree with us. I'll say that again. We really only get along with people we like and that agree with us. And we form them into clusters and, and clubs and, and interest groups and, and uh, parties, you know, whether it's a political party or something else. We, we get together and we, and we clump ourselves up in these groups of people that we like and agree with us. And if we're thrown out of that into some other environment where we are surrounded by people of a mixture of whether we have similar personality traits and whether we have agreement of opinion on uh, anything, um, then we are really bring out the nature of man. And that's why when you go into the workforce and now you've got a, a workforce that's... Uh, bringing together people of dissimilar backgrounds and uh, interests and commitments, and you're going to have lots of arguments. You're going to have friction going on there. And that's why when any administration comes in, a political administration comes in, what's the first thing they do? When we get a new mayor, what's the first thing they do? He just cleans the house and he puts in all the guys he likes. Why? Because he has the authority to do that and he wants everyone to agree with him. Surprise? <laughs> we come into Jesus Christ's ministry and we are going to be called to a different kind of love, but he says, I'm not of the world. I am, I am dissimilar from you. Why am I dissimilar from you? Because my opinions are subordinated to the truth. The truth of God's word. Oh, now we have a problem because truth is objective. That is, it doesn't matter what you feel about it. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. So Jesus Christ comes in with an absolute truth. And now he is riling feathers up. And people are getting a little frustrated and upset at him. And we're not talking about ignorant people. We're talking about the leaders of the people, religious leaders of the people, who don't want to hear the truth. 
because they're used to everybody hanging on their word, their opinions, as the law of the land. And unfortunately, that's what we have today in our society. We have the opinions of politicians that become the law of our land, and whether you agree with it or not, and whether it is representative of the needs of the people. And that disconnect from, the, from knowing the people um, is, is the tragedy of our government. It was meant to, through the republic form, uh, to keep the leaders connected to the people, but that's no longer happening anymore. Uh, very few of our uh, elected officials ever show, I, they don't show up here unless it's time for me to vote. That's the only time they call me. That they don't come by and ask my how I'm doing or how things should be. It's only when they want something from me, not when they want to see what they can give me. And so the religious leadership of that day was accustomed to having the authority, and Jesus Christ comes in with another authority. That authority is the authority of truth. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So Rabbi so-and-so isn't the authority anymore. Boy, you want to make enemies? Just undermine that. And so we find that the world hates God because it exposes you to the truth. And we don't want to hear that. We want to be stroked. We want our egos and our emotions to be um, feel good about. I want to feel good about myself and, and my way of life. I want everything about my culture, my personal culture, my family culture, my, my general culture to be uh, approved by God. And here comes a guy like Jesus who says, this is all disapproved by God. And here's why, and here's the truth. And there come people that will hate him. Hate him enough to want him dead. And seeking out opportunity to do the same. And so the world hates him. But I want you to notice here that they did not hate you first. They hated him first because he was not of this world. As we become followers of him, we become less and less like the world. Notice that the world loves its own. If you're like me, I love you. If you agree with me, I like you, and, I, and I'll love you, and I'll take care of you, and we'll watch out for each other. Um, but if you say I'm wrong over and over and over again, and I'm talking about not just <laughs> wrong about some factual thing, but completely wrong in the entire direction you're living your life. Because that's what we're, when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, that's essentially what we're doing. We're coming to them and saying, you have been living a lie. You've been living as Satan is your father. You've been living in this fashion, and you are disapproved by God, and, the, and you are going to be condemned to eternal fire um, because of the commitments of your life. And we are inviting you to a completely new life. That's why we call it being born again. Start over, because everything you live so far is a disaster spiritually before God, and you'll be condemned for that. Can you, I mean, just start grasping that. And then we wonder why they hate us? We just told them everything about their life is wrong. Everything. <laughs> 
The world loves its own. I love people who are like me. And sometimes that's very superficial. You don't dress like me. I don't like you. That's junior high. I wish it stayed in junior high, but now I'm finding out that that's 30 and 40-year-olds act like that. You don't dress like me. I don't like you. That's pretty superficial, but we have that going on. And, and we don't even have to get to eye color, hair color, skin color, and all that. That's about as superficial as it gets. None of you can choose that. But if you're like me, then I, like, then I will get along with you. How silly. Something you have zero choice about. So we can do it from very superficial to some very substantial things. But essentially, when we go out the gospel, we're saying all of these commitments of your life are misplaced. They are wrong. And they are leading to death. They are leading to eternal judgment. And you're going to have to come out. That's our message. Well, the world loves its own. It loves itself. And you're telling them that everything they learn from mom and dad, everything they learn from, from their community, everything they learn from that is wrong. And that they have to repent of it. That is that they have to not look to that anymore and turn and go 180 degrees, a change of mind to completely different truth. Something that is true instead of the lie. That's the message we go out. And then, no wonder they hate it. Who wants to hear that? In this day and age, in political correctness, nobody. They're going to hate you more and more. Now, we can apply some of this, and then we, we recognize that once we already have a disposition to, uh, against God's word, he says, I come and spoken to them, and so they know the truth and they hate it. And so they have no excuse for their sin. I came and did these wonderful works among them. They saw the signs. And so they saw the people getting healed. They saw the people getting fed. They saw the demons being cast out. They saw all these miracles. And so they're guilty because they've heard the truth. They've seen the truth. And they still hate you. Please recognize that compromise and being nice does not make hate go away. There is no placating this because you're talking about two completely different spheres. We have this in community of, which is driven by, I will love you if you are like me and agree with me. And then you have one that says there's an absolute truth. It is God's. It has been given to us. We must submit to it completely and entirely. And those two systems of life cannot agree with each other. And so we are called from the light to the darkness. And they are in the darkness. And this is John's favorite illustration, that they're in darkness. There is no light there. We are called to be that light, and we're calling them in. And anyone who has been in the dark for an extended period of time, as soon as they're exposed to the light, will do one reaction. If you've been in a cave for weeks, I'm not talking hours, I'm talking about weeks, some spelunkers, and there were some kids that were caught in a cave in the Philippines. They got pulled out. The first thing they do, the first thing that happens as soon as you get brought out of that darkness is you close your eyes. Because the light hurts. 
Well, what do you think is going to happen when they're in spiritual darkness and you come in with their light? They're going to shut you down. But we persist and we endure and we let them maltreat us. And while we're trying to bring them out of this horrible pit of darkness, uh, they're covering their eyes and pushing us away and looking and want to go back in because it hurts. And so when we go, we anticipate that. We anticipate that reaction that they're going to hate us because they only love their own. The world hates us because we're not like them. We shouldn't be anyway. And so they'll persecute you. We are called to endure that, to last, to stand fast, to persist. Now, historically, it has been really, really obvious historically how the world hates us, hates the Christian. Okay, and when we talk about the Christian, I want you to understand that some of the worst treatment of Christians has been at the hands of the church. Please understand, when I say Christian, I'm not saying Catholic Church, I'm not saying Christendom in general. I'm talking about individual followers of Jesus Christ and some of the worst treatment that has been experienced by Christians, true followers of Jesus Christ, is at the hands of the church. When we talk about, when people talk about the, uh, the period of Spanish Inquisition, um, and oh, and they and they say, well, how you know I can't follow after Christianity because of how they did the Spanish Inquisition. And I was like, do you know who the Inquisition was against? Who it was that was being tortured and murdered? They were Christians who wanted to have a Bible in their own language, or even just have a Bible. Period. They were people who wanted to stand for the truths of God's word. They were. That's what the Inquisition and, and other maltreatment, uh, including all the way through the Reformation, it was Christians who were mistreated. It were Baptists who were being drowned by reformers. Yeah, the Calvinists and, and Zwingliites and, and Lutherans. It was at the hands of other, other quote-unquote Christians. Not Christians, the church. And so here, Jesus is going to be crucified. Who's going to spearhead this? Is it the Romans? It isn't the unregenerate. They, they could, they're almost apathetic. It's the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that are going to spearhead this. So when we talk about this historical understanding of the persecution of the church, are of the Christian, recognize that some of that is coming from, a lot of that is coming from the church, from the religious communities. And even today, when we look at persecution, it is not so much a political thing as it is a religious thing. And in India, the problem they're having is radical Hindu. Well, they have a government that is radical Hindu. What is going on in these Muslim nations? Well, it is because not of their political view. It is not because you have a supreme leader. It's not because you have a king instead of a president or a prime minister. No, it's not their politics that's the problem. It is their religion that is the problem. That is what moves them to want to kill Followers of Jesus Christ. So that is historically, and outside the United States and our environs, um, that's the way it has been. It has been very obvious, very evident. You either stand for Christ and you might suffer the 
persecution, which entailed death, it entailed suffering, it entailed the loss of goods, it entailed the loss of your family, being, being expelled from your home and from your relationships, and, and you had to stand fast. It meant going into the Colosseum and fighting lions or gladiators. It meant being burned to death at, a, at Caesar's parties um, and, and to light the party. It, it meant all those things. It meant me being torn asunder by horses dragging you. It meant all those things. You might say, well, we don't experience in that. Does the, does the world hate us? Well, I have two things to say to this. Number one, if the world doesn't hate us, <clears throat> then according to God's word, we're not followers of Jesus Christ. If they get along with us, <clears throat> it's because we are working hard to look like them, sound like them, act like them, all of it. And even really behave, uh, believe like them. If the world doesn't hate you, it's because we are of their own. They only love their own. So that's the first thing I want to just share with you. That's a challenge out there. Uh, that really correlates with all things we've already studied in these passages about believing, obeying, doing his works, um, bearing fruit, and, and abiding in Christ, all these things in John 14 and 15. Now we come to the idea the world hates you. If the world doesn't hate you, then you aren't keeping his word, you aren't obeying God's word, you are not abiding in the vine, you are not bearing fruit, you're not doing the works of God among here on earth. You are not engaged in those things, and you are a fool for believing that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because the world likes you. Now, does that mean you should go out there and pick fights and should get beat up? No. Um, this takes us to some eschatology. I went to Revelation to demonstrate to you that, and I could go again and again to other passages, it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And that you will endure to the end. You will stand fast to the end. The end, the end, the end. Uh, and that might be the end of your life, but it's really talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And that was there in Hebrews as well, that it is coming. We are looking towards his coming. Can we endure to his coming? And so at the coming, we have described uh, a different entity arrives on the earth. That, that, uh, that entity is a national power that... Um, can do great wonders and signs and, and uh, has a great abundance of everything, uh, including debt. <laughs> Sound familiar? And so let's look a little bit of how they persecute because persecution changes in this one time for one people. Go to Daniel. Book of Daniel. There is one time in one nation, that persecution takes on an entirely different appearance. It's still persecution. It is still tribulation. It is still a hardship, um, but it is very subtle. We're talking about the last kingdom on earth, and, and for those of you who've heard my eschatology, you know that that is the, the, the U.S. is right there. Uh, and so we're going to... I don't have time to delve into all of that, but I want to jump into here. Uh, this is the fourth beast. Dale chapter 7, verse 23 says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. Please notice that. 
The last kingdom on earth is different from all other kingdoms. No other kingdoms were like it before. This is something new upon the earth, and it's going to devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. Ten horns are ten kingdoms who shall arise from this kingdom. So now you have ten horns and ten kings. And so we have this, and it shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So then out of these, from these ten horns, there's going to arise another one. So this kingdom that comes is different from all the others, and that's the Roman kingdom that is different because now we have a republic. And yes, the Romans had a republican form of government. We fashioned our government after Roman government. And so does everyone who uses this form. Not, not, not a, it's democratic, but it's not a democracy. And so we are not a democracy. We are a democratic republic. And so we have a republic. And really only in the last hundred years were our senators elected. And a lot of people don't know that. That our senators were appointed by the state legislatures until like 19... 12 or 1913, whenever the, the, the uh, 17th Amendment was added. Uh, then we started to elect our senators. But we had a true republic at the beginning uh, where the senators were appointed by the state legislatures. And so uh, they were connected to the state. And the state could yank them at any time if they didn't toe the line. Um, and now we, can't, we have to go through this ridiculous process. Anyway. So we have the Roman form of government come on the scene. It's divided into ten. This goes along with other things Daniel has seen. But it says, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first one. So you have a completely different kingdom, the Roman Empire, divided into ten smaller places. And, and then there's an eleventh one that comes up, and he's different from all the other ones. I want you to notice that he's different, different. We're going to follow the Roman difference, but then we're going to even add our own uniqueness to it. This final kingdom. Look, and it says, He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. And that's why I know that it's the United States, because of our handling of Spain, England, and France. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. I can demonstrate that again in our national language. And... Notice the next line. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. That word persecute has a little number probably in your Bible beside it because that's a horrible translation of the word there. Uh, and if you look at the little number, if it has a little number in your margin or, or at the bottom of your page, it says wear down or wear out. He will wear out the saints. You see, in the end times, this different country that's different than all of its predecessors is going to come in, speak pompous words, that is arrogant, that we're the best, we're the best, and wear out the saints. This kind of persecution is unique to this period of time. It is a word that Daniel uses very carefully. It's a word of, of just this, just keep rubbing. Just rub a little bit. So what happens to clothing as you wear it? What happens? Unless you catch it on a nail or, or cut it with something. What happens to your clothing over time? It just gets thinner and thinner and thinner because you're wearing it. and just It's on a molecular level. You don't see it in any one day, do you? It just gets thinner and thinner. Pretty soon you're looking at this and saying, I can see through this thing. 
why am I still wearing this? And then you give it to the yard sale. We know. <laughs> Please throw those in the rags, okay? Um, we don't you want to sell those in the yard sales. But uh, this is not stuff that we just grow tired of. This is stuff that is, we have worn out. We have worn till it's not valuable anymore. We've just worn it down. And this is the kind of persecution that the last country, the end times will bring upon this people group, and this is what we are experiencing, a wearing down of our faith. And it is so subtle that we don't notice it because it's on this very small scale, day after day after day after day after day after day. And it's not until we step back from it and we look up and we compare and contrast Here's what our Christianity was like 50 years ago, and here's what it is now in our country. But most of us don't do that, because we're sure that we're improving Christianity, aren't we? We're sure that we have a better, but you go back 50 years ago, then go back 100 years ago, then go back 150 years ago, and see what Christianity looked like in our country, compared to what it is now. Wow. Every old-time pastor, and I've read many, many of them, even guys from 150 years ago stepped back and looked, and they're like, being a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't look at all like it was when I was young. And they were disconcerted. Are we even Christians anymore? This isn't someone that wrote 20 years ago. This is someone that wrote 120 years ago. I'm not even sure we're a Christian country anymore because people who say they're Christians don't act like Christians. Can you imagine what he saw if he walked in today? But it's so gradual, it's so slight here and there, and there's no great battle. If we would just have a great battle that we could just put our standard in the ground and there's the flag and, and we could call everyone to duty and, and everyone will jump to it and recognize we're on the Lord's side and there's a definite line and if you're over there, you're not following Jesus Christ and if you're over there, you are, that would be a simple thing. But this nation is deceivious. There's no one battle. There's just a little friction here and there. A little touch here and there. A little rub here and there. Not even lasting. Just a little whoosh, A glance. Whoosh. And if I keep doing this, eventually I can't wear this jacket anymore. It'll just wear off. Just a little bit. Did, did it just keep going? No, I just felt it once. As we're walking through life in this country, we are enduring persecution, and it's time we begin to understand it, that it is a wearing out of the saints, a wearing down of the saints, that this is what is going on, and that we need to stand fast against it, and, and that, it is incredibly difficult, and that's why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit, we so desperately need to be in God's Word, and when we should be in God's Word more, we are in God's Word less when it's even more accessible today than at any other time. You can get it on your phone, you can get a little Bible app, you can even have it talk to you, you can hear the Word of God all day long, anytime you want, you can have it be your hourly alarm that they read the next verse of Scripture, and you can hear 24 verses a day. 
How many of you never thought that you could do that with your phone? Never thought to do it with your phone? By the way, that technology has been around a long time. Not with phones, but I had a, a dorm mate that was blind, and he had a clock that talked to him every hour, every half hour, every 15 minutes maybe. Every 15 minutes, it is 9.15. All day, all night. So, we're in the, so if you wake up in the dorm, you just have to wait a minimum of 14 minutes, and you'll know what time it is. Because his clock will tell you. Your phone can tell you. You can hear God's word. You have access to it any time. But I find that Christians are more ignorant of what's in God's word than any other time I, I, in my life. It is frightening how ignorant we are of God's word, of what's truly in there, because we trust Hollywood's version of the flood narrative of Noah. Take your pick, it doesn't matter, because they're all erroneous. We trust Hollywood's version of what happened at the, ten, at, at the Exodus. You know, we're, we're pretty sure that Moses looked just like Charles and Heston. You see, we've been wearing down, and so our battle is a very frightening one because we don't even know we're at war. And so we have lost before we even knew we were engaged. Because the enemy was engaged because they hate who Jesus is, and they hate his followers. And we need to understand that. That We didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden it was against the law to preach against homosexuality. And it is in our country. And yes, they could listen to my podcast, come in and arrest me today for hate speech. Because I have from this pulpit preached that homosexuality is sin. Period. And yes, you can be arrested for that in our country today. You don't believe that, though. See, you've lost the battle before you even knew there was one. No, we have free speech, Pastor. No, you don't. No. We have this, we have that. No, you don't. You think you have free speech? We have a few school teachers here. Can you talk about God in class? No. Oh, no. When I was a student, we took a class called the Bible. It was an elective. When I was a very young student, we had Bibles in our classroom. The Gideons came and handed them out, not on the sidewalk outside, in the classroom. So that every kid had a little New Testament. You don't think we're under attack? Wake up. The enemy hates you. But instead of attacking you forthrightly, in a, in a, they're participating in guerrilla warfare. They're hiding behind every tree and every bush and wanting to just trip you up and trip you up and, and, weed, and, and weaken you down and weaken you down a little by attrition. Not just, not just morally but, and spiritually, but even in your relationship within your family, within, within, with your relationship with God, with your relationship with God's word, they are just wearing you down. And now it's almost impossible to get children to read God's word because they only watch videos. 
And they're bored by reading. In fact, this week my wife came home and informed me that there are a bunch of things that are old-fashioned now, you just get rid of and never have them again because they're passe. And on the list was books. Well, as soon as someone tells me to get rid of books, because you don't need books anymore, I'm thinking of the book, my Bible. Brethren, you need to endure. Stand fast. But you are engaged in a battle that you don't even necessarily know is going on, and we've already lost so much ground before we even knew that we were being attacked, but we should have known. God's word told us that this was going to happen. He told us the world hates you. Understand the world hates Jesus Christ. He hates the truth. The world hates it. And we must confront the world and engage the world with that understanding that they hate us, period. It cannot be placated. It cannot be compromised. It cannot be ignored. And, and as soon as we do, we are, we've lost so much ground just in my lifetime as a pastor. So much ground. One of the things I really enjoyed going over to the Philippines um, was, I tell people, it's kind of like what I remember church being like in the 70s. But they're slipping fast. Because we're leading the world. We're wearing out. Remember this last empire, what does he do? He's he uh, affects the whole earth, devours the whole earth. And thus we are called to a war that most of you don't even acknowledge exists. And so you are being eroded away into nothing. And your faith is no longer of substance enough to shelter you from the wind, to warm you from the cold to guard you from heat. It is so thin you are naked. Spiritually. And exposed. And we, like some in the Revelation churches, need to gird ourselves. Regird ourselves with fresh armor. For what we have now is so thin that it is no good. So no value. We are more concerned about making sure we replace car seats and safety belts than we are about our spiritual armor and upgrading it. Upgrade your armor. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us today. And we thank you for this exhortation from your word today. Lord, we don't really believe it. We don't believe the world hates us. We believe we can get along with them. We believe that we can uh, move adeptly through and among them without causing any waves. Lord, forgive us for that sin of not believing your word when you say that they hate you and they should hate us. And Lord, help us to stand fast and to recognize the erosion that is going on in our faith because of this culture, because of this country, because of these principles that we see being played out before us and we are asleep too often. Lord, keep us alert. 
Help us to stand guard of our hearts, of our lives, of our families, and of this church. That we might resist the erosion that the evil one wants to happen in us and among us. Praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.